All right, Mr. Manager. All right, Mayor, members of Council. Um, I'm going to do a, an agenda review for you, overview, and then we'll jump right into it, which is um, I've got um, uh, John Stevenson, your senior transportation engineer, is going to do a pop-up, uh, give you a quick update on um, some quick actions on Hampton Boulevard and Prince Sand Road, and we're going to have a lot of conversation about uh, Jim Reddick, uh, Emergency Operations Manager, is going to come up and um, talk to you about Florence after action report, and uh, we'll talk about this a little more when he gets here, but um, obviously a, a, a lot went on that week. We were, we were blessed that the storm didn't come here, but uh, we uh, prepared as if it were, and uh, frankly, we learned a lot, and I think we'll be better prepared for the next one, and he's going to explain that. Uh, Jessica Dennis, uh, Management Analyst, is going to come back and talk to you about the uh, scooters, e-scooters, and uh, we've got a recommendation for you to go out for a proposal on a, on a pilot program. Uh, we'll talk about uh, your council calendar, so we want to get you to adopt that next week, and I think we've uh, responded to the, some of the issues and concerns, and I'll talk to you about the principles we used to, to set that up, and then Richard Broad is going to uh, come forward and give you an update on recycling, and then we will go into a closed session for a couple of uh, real estate items. Um, so with that said, I'd ask John to step forward. John Stevenson, your senior transportation engineer, and obviously we've heard a lot in the last few months uh, about Hampton Boulevard and uh, Princess Anne Road uh, in particular, and we've had some conversations at, um, at, the, at the retreat and then and again in the meeting in here about exactly what's happening on Princess Anne Road, particularly in the uh, short run, but I, I want him to just want us all to see it and be clear of uh, what's happening. So John, if you can step forward. And all right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Aaron. First one's Hampton Boulevard. Uh, has to do with some long-standing concerns with uh, area residents regarding speeding and other pedestrian safety issues along Hampton Boulevard. Uh, probably the most impactful recommendation that we're going to be making is for some lane reductions on Hampton Boulevard in the vicinity of the Bowling Avenue intersection. This is uh, a location where earlier this year we had a tractor-trailer, unfortunately, that flipped over right in the middle of the intersection. Could have really been a hazardous situation. Uh, so as a result of that, uh, what we're taking a look at is taking measures to reduce the speed levels and improve the safety through the curve of the intersection. That includes doing the lane reduction, going from three lanes to two lanes in the southbound direction, widening the lanes slightly, um, not too much to increase speeds, but just slightly, and also uh, improving the geometrics of the radius through the curve, again, to help uh, navigate the vehicles through the intersection more safely. Um, We've uh, had a number of uh, Civic League meetings we've attended. We've attended four already. We've got uh, Larchmont Civic League coming up uh, this coming Thursday evening. And then we have four more that are either scheduled or tentatively scheduled for January. All right. Next. And the next one is uh, Prince Sand Road. Uh, this is uh, uh, initiative to try and improve the safety of, for pedestrians as well as I'm sorry. Hampton Boulevard. So this is this is a portion of what we're recommending, but we're recommending more than this. That's correct. This is probably the most significant recommendation. So these are the things that are going to happen in the near term. You've got a you've got um, the Hampton Boulevard committee uh, that's going to come forward with a, a series of recommendations. But this is going to happen uh, fairly quickly, and um, we just didn't want to get ahead of you, get ahead of the community. And um, uh, also, because we've had the conversations about this signal at Princess Anne, I wanted everybody to be real clear on what we're doing and what we're not doing. I understand, but <clears throat> with regard to this, we've had a series of meetings 
So I just want to just distinguish between what we're talking about with regards to this and a broader, uh, right. uh, several elements of the Boulevard. This specifically will is distinct and it's going to happen no matter what. Is that what you're saying? No, or? it's still a recommendation. We're going through the public outreach process. It's uh, something we feel very strongly about to help improve the safety through the network. It's part of the reason we're recommending this action now is uh, as you may well know, Hampton Boulevard is going to be resurfaced coming this spring. And we see this as an opportunity during that resurfacing program to make some uh, lane marking improvements uh, with that uh, resurfacing project. So this would start at what, at what point? At the uh, southbound side of the bridge? Uh, well, it's a combination of things. It really would begin uh, uh, just south of Bowling Avenue in the northbound direction, all the way up to potentially uh, the foot of the Hampton Boulevard Bridge. Coming southbound, it actually would be quite a bit longer because of how we want to uh, reduce and affect the speeds of traffic coming over the Hampton Boulevard Bridge. We're actually talking about reducing uh, the travel lanes, getting right around Glen Eagles, start the transition and the reduction of travel lanes in that area. Uh, this one just happens to show southbound. It'd get a little too cluttered if we showed northbound direction as well. Okay. So there's, this, is, this is more extensive than the, the photo. Quite a bit, yes. Okay, it's Quite what we're hearing otherwise. I just wanted to distinguish between what we've heard in the committee meetings versus what we're seeing here right. because it's a little more extensive. And Absolutely. Okay. All right. They are going out, as the last note points out, anyone watching online, they're going to all the... Um, Civic League meetings and doing right. presentations. I was lucky enough to attend one earlier this week, and y'all are doing a fantastic job taking input from the citizens. So it's Thank you. And it's more extensive process. at the Civic League. You're going into more detail. Uh, yeah, quite a bit yeah. more detail, absolutely. And Larchmont meeting at December 20th? December 20th, correct. Okay. That would be a great meeting for folks who are interested in this to come. A absolutely. We're definitely encouraging us. The Civic League president is really putting out a good right. good notice, so we expect a good crowd. Sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry to no, I appreciate you want a little more detail. All right. Uh, again, the next one is uh, Princess Anne Road. Uh, this is, again, uh, really an initiative to try and improve the safety and the motor vehicle uh, access in and around the uh, Richard Bowling Elementary School and the uh, Newby, uh, Jordan Newby Branch Library. Um, uh, short term, we're looking at actually doing a traffic signal at the intersection of um, uh, Princess Anne Road at uh, Majestic. This is really based on some input from community meetings with Broad Creek Civic League and some conversations with community as well. Um, this is uh, just really the short-term approach. We're actually looking at having a longer-term, broader review of Princess Anne Road corridor or as well as the Virginia Beach Boulevard corridor. We actually have a consultant on board. Uh, they're already doing uh, traffic counts and studies on both uh, Virginia Beach Boulevard and uh, Princess Anne Road. So we expect to come up with a really broad initiative uh, for that particular area. This is a quick response, uh, something we've done in-house, and we're going to have an, our indefinite quantity contractor actually do the construction as opposed to going out to bid. John, be real clear on what the signal is in the short run. It's not the way Winter explained to me, not really all that different from what happened at Waterside Drive while we were waiting for that poll, call it a year ago. So, right. so, so explain, because it, <clears throat> it was, I think it was unclear, I think some folks are, you're, you're saying traffic signal, and they're picking a big flat pole, arm coming off of it, new pole, which is, takes longer, more expensive, but what, 
Describe what they're getting. We're the doing a little bit of both. Uh, it's actually going to be a full intersection. Uh, I think in the early talks we talked about doing something different that would just be for pedestrians, but based on uh, conversations that we've had and actually observing the school operation, we realized that that was probably not the best thing to, to do. So we're actually doing a full-blown traffic signal with pedestrian improvements. Uh, it'll be uh, pedestrian signals. And actually when the pedestrians uh, will be crossing the street, uh, none of the vehicular traffic will be moving. It's going to be what we would refer to exclusive pedestrian phase. So uh, that's really to improve the safety at that particular location. We're actually going in with um, a temporary installation for the most part, which is going to be wood poles. Uh, some of the infrastructure will actually be permanent because we can do that now, but we're going with wood poles right now because for the traffic signal displays themselves, because the lead time for the signal equipment is anywhere from 20 weeks to 38 weeks. So we felt that was just way too long to wait. And so we're going in with the wood poles, at least temporarily, until we can get in with the permanent project. Question? John, thank you. So just because we've got a lot of conversation, just wanted some clarification, and uh, particularly on the, on the second one in that um, I know we've had uh, speakers at different times. And, uh, and frankly, I was, I think I misled you all at the retreat on uh, what was going to get put up. And um, so I just wanted it to be really clear on what was going to get put up in the short run and what's going to be up in the, in the long run. All right. Um, so with that, I'm going to ask Jim Reddick to jump up. And as I said, we had the uh, Hurricane Florence and I'm um, going to give you the uh, after action report and uh, look forward to any conversation or insights uh, that you all have as well. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, sir. Um, Mayor, members of council, Mr. Smith, thank you for the opportunity to share with you uh, some of those highlighted lessons learned from Hurricane Florence. As uh, many of us are aware, Kim, can you go to the next slide, please? So to piggyback on what the, the manager said, we had all of the storm and really none of the impacts. So the storm came, it went, uh, and in a lot of places that would be considered a non-event. But that's not so for here. Uh, for uh, those of us here in Team Norfolk, we see it as not a non-event, but an opportunity, and, and more so a responsibility to really identify what exactly went right and what those areas of improvement are. And we do so under a microscopic lens to the point where it almost seems like we just did a bad job. And that's not the case at all. I want to emphasize all that we had done correctly, those strengths on which we can build, uh, but certainly where those areas of improvement can be, can be made. Next slide. So anytime we're doing uh, disaster response, there are the five key areas uh, through which we work. Number one is obviously command and coordination. It's the leadership aspect, the, the, the strategic vision, uh, really uh, implementing those things that we want to accomplish throughout the incident. And then number one is always life safety. And then we look at the infrastructure. Public safety doesn't stop in bad weather. And then if we're not keeping the community informed, then we're really not doing a great job in terms of responding to the incident. Kim. So looking at command and coordination, uh, what I try to do with these slides is on the left-hand slide, show those strengths, those things that went right, and on the right-hand side, those areas of improvement. And I'll tell you up front, a lot of the areas of improvement, they aren't technical issues, they aren't resource issues. Uh, we're blessed to have the resources that we need. We just need to come together uh, to make sure that we you know, come together with a, a combined solution. So the collaboration, teamwork, Team Norfolk, it is what it is. Uh, it's a successful practice. 
Uh, we work very closely with Dr. Boone, Norfolk Public Schools. Uh, the Sheriff's Office was a fantastic partner. We work with the largest employer in our area, the Navy, as well as our higher education partners and so many other folks. So the teamwork, the collaboration, we collaborated very well, uh, and we collaborated often. The physical location where a lot of that took place is in the Emergency Operations Center, and Mr. Smith made a decision early that the, the uh, the, the EOC in which we usually work on Virginia Beach Boulevard was not going to be a, appropriate or sufficient for this type of storm heading our way. So he made the call to go to the third precinct. Best decision made. Uh, again, we, we did that early. And if it weren't for Stephen DeBerry and his folks, information technology working day and night for at least 48 hours, if not longer, they made that work. Because if we don't have the ports, we don't have the communications equipment, we don't have the technology there, then it's gonna be more of a primitive emergency operations center. We can't reach out to the partners with whom we work. Uh, and with that was improved situational awareness. We had that improved situational awareness in the emergency operations center, but also through the use of technology uh, and, and more you know, basic technology in terms of conference lines. Team Norfolk is, is more than the amount of folks that we can fit into an emergency operations center. So our briefings were conducted in person and uh, through video, or video conference calls. So the partners from HRT, from Dominion, Virginia Power, from Old Dominion, Norfolk State, all of them were on our conference calls so we could share what situational awareness we had and what situational awareness they had, and we can all work together towards those common goals and objectives. Um, so the areas of improvement are awareness of citywide plans. Uh, we have excellent plans at each departmental level, and sometimes we can refer to them as silos of excellence, frankly. Uh, the plans were followed, the SOPs were followed, but we have citywide plans that, that were adopted by this body, uh, showing more of a catastrophic scenario, how all those resources can come together to really respond to uh, any disaster in the most effective way. And part of that planning is the gap analysis and pre-scripted request. So knowing exactly what do we have on hand, is it serviceable? If we don't have it on hand, is it something that's available through our partners uh, throughout the region? Is it a resource request? Do we invest in the equipment? Would it be worth sustaining those costs? Or do we simply have a prescriptive request in our battle rhythm that should these conditions uh, are, if, if these conditions are met, we automatically request these things from, from the state? Uh, so we're working through that process right now. That improved situational awareness I mentioned, uh, there's a program we, call, we used called HISM, the Homeland Security Information Network. The bad thing is I didn't do much training about HISM or awareness of that, that tool was prior to. So we have been working with Homeland Security uh, and the folks from HISM prior to this storm uh, for several weeks trying to figure out if this is a new product that we would really like to leverage. Uh, and Florence was a great opportunity to really kick the tires on that. Uh, we made it work, but obviously without folks having true awareness of what it's capable of doing, uh, accounts were an issue and everything else, uh, a lot of areas of improvement uh, are, are, have been identified there. Greater commitment to the incident command system, and we've talked about the incident command system and its overall program being the uh, National Incident Management System on really, again, something this body adopted in 2005 as our formal uh, system to, to respond to any incidents. We need to do a better job on that. Again, like I put on the bottom of that slide, that's on me. I need to prepare or provide a scenario of catastrophic planning, and I need to do a lot better in terms of planning and training on what the incident command system is. The incident command system, if you're unfamiliar with, I mean, the planning piece alone is what makes it worthwhile. That allows us to be more proactive in terms of a disaster response instead of reactive. 
Uh, likewise, logistics, it allows us to leverage what resources we have and go through one section so we can leverage and maximize all of Team Norfolk's resources. But we also need that commitment from partner agencies. So if we're going to have shared goals and objectives, and we have a timeline by which we're going to uh, restore services throughout the city, we need to make sure that everyone is on board with that and there aren't any agencies acting independently. It's got to be a one-team, one one-team, one-fight mentality. And, and we can establish that one-team, one-fight uh, mentality regionally as well. Um, you have been briefed before about regional solutions and, and a regional response to disaster. That's something else that we had focused on and something we're going to uh, continue to build on uh, for future events. Next. So, like I said, the number one priority for any disaster is always life safety. So we have mass care, health, and human services. Know Your Zone sticker was proven to be a, a best practice uh, when, the, when the governor uh, designated the, or, or called for the mandatory evacuation, our 911 folks were slammed, and they did a fantastic job. However, we would have received a lot more calls if we hadn't put the stickers on everybody's trash cans. So that work, which was done between my office, Richard Broad's office, the folks doing waste management, uh, and some of our volunteers from the Navy and community emergency response team all got together to make sure that everybody had stickers on their trash can. So when the governor made his, his uh, mandatory evacuation order and the state's website went down, we could tell folks simply just check out your trash can. And it worked so well. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I, I knew my zone, so it wasn't an issue. Sure, sure. But, you know, trash cans get beaten up and taken through the ringer. Are we going to re-sticker? Yes, ma'am. We can do that right now, in fact. We have uh, put out I, the word. I wouldn't do it right now. I would, I would wait until the summer. Sure. So it's right before a hurricane. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, but I'm just saying just that it should be an annual thing to do in, you know, hurricane prep season, which probably was August Time sure. So, so yes, we will do an annual checkup on that. But in the meantime, folks can simply call the Norfolk Cares Call Center, and if they say they don't have a sticker on their trash can, we'll schedule a time to get it out there. A nice blue sky. Is there also a better way for people? I, I never paid attention to the stickers. Okay. Okay. So, but I I knew where I live. Because you don't take out the trash. That is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're I never, <laughs> I never paid attention to the sticker, and there are a lot of people who didn't pay attention to the sticker. So when you said that there was a sticker, there were a lot of people who didn't know what you were talking about. Sure. And so I'm just wondering, is there a is there another way that we can help people help themselves um, so that 911 is not because if 911 is slammed with what's my zone, 911 mm -hmm. it, it, it keeps it. it, it it makes it so when if somebody's dying, that call is taking longer to get processed sure. if people are calling asking, what's my zone? So how can we help our residents better understand what zone they're in and then what that means in terms of evacuation okay. um, when we're, you know, when we have these kind of mandatory evacuations? Sure. So I love the question. I will say that. Uh, there are two, two prongs to the, the response. One, Lori and, and Marcom had done uh, an informal survey after the storm about who evacuated, what, was their, what were their decision points, and stuff like that. And likewise, Old Dominion is doing a more uh, scientific study uh, exactly of, you know, what, again, what were the hindrances about the stickers and everything else and, and what goes into an individual's decision. So we'll have some more data on, on which to, to, to 
craft new messages to make sure that the, the messaging can be as effective as possible. And the other piece, and, and I kind of mentioned it on the right hand towards the bottom, is neighborhood inclusion. To, to quote Jerry Maguire, help me help you, we can give the message all day long, but it's, people, want, people have to want to receive it. And so when we go out into the community, and we have some exciting things scheduled with Michelle Johnson, Neighborhood Development, uh, where we're partnering together to go out into the community to meet people where they are. So they don't necessarily have to attend a special event anywhere. We will come to them. But so often, and, and we've seen this body in particular, we'll have events where we have more staff than people attending. And so we have to work on how we can attract folks to actually attend these meetings so we can give them this critical information. We will, we will hold it whenever, however, and however often. Okay, so could you possibly do, since most uh, uh, people's attention span is very short, maybe a 30-second or 45-second video that's posted to social media? The other thing that I know we've asked for several different times is when y'all post stuff like that, can you tag us in it? I mean, we said this like four or five, I know we've had this conversation like four or five times that I can remember because we reach an audience oftentimes that the, somebody may not be tuned into the city web, the, the city Facebook page or the city Twitter. So if you tag council members who are active on social media, you also get a whole nother audience of people, especially if you're trying to get survey information or if you're trying to get information out there. And so I don't know what has to happen to make that happen. I mean, if we have to sign something or whatever, it's no, fine. Yeah, but if we, and then, you know, it just helps to get it to, because we're engaged personally with, with citizens, mm -hmm. and so it helps us to help you to get information to people who are, who need it. Sure. You so know, you just quoted uh, Jerry Maguire to me now. So, okay. <laughs> so, yes, ma'am, consider that done. Let me help you. That's, that, that's an easy fix. Yes, yeah, but a video would help, I mean, and then with a link or whatever, I mean, because people's attention spans are small. Sure. Or short, rather. So yeah. you can, you know. Okay, I'm the perfect model for that. So I'll get it, I'll get that for you. Councilman Smeagol, sure. uh, I just I don't want to poo-poo the stickers because the people who are going to um, look at them looked at them. And the people are it's like any other communication. It was just one extra thing that I think we did, and it helped for the people that were going to utilize. So I want to keep them going because I think it, for those who do take out the trash, um, I, I saw the sticker, so uh, I, I knew, knew my zone. I know there's some corrections that we need to make because. One of the map, state maps was different than our map in, um, in East Ocean View area. Uh, but my recommendation, because everybody looks at their water bill, is to somehow put it on the Harub's bill um, as where you get closer to it, where they can see it. just says, and I know that the billing on Harub's sometimes goes to um, uh, a different address, but all it is is a statement on there that says this is based off of your physical address, you know, on that. So, but... Um, particularly many elderly people that still uh, still get a bill and do it that way. So, I mean, I pay online, but I still get a physical bill because I have to check it uh, to make sure I'm not getting billed incorrectly. But people look at those rubs bill, and I know they do because of all the emails we get um, from people complaining none about of, the cost of, us, of it. None of us do. None of us look at our bills. I'm just saying it's a good okay. actual So, once place. again, just another form <laughs> of communication. I, you know, it's just like we, we go to civic leagues all the time, but we know there's a whole group of people on next door. It's just another mode of communication with people, and I and that's a free thing. I don't think we pay to have a message printed in Harub's. I think that's include, we get a certain amount of messaging 
we could do, it could just be a slip of paper that goes in there based off of the address. So. You know what, if you put it near the amount due, <laughs> people will pay attention to that. Right. You put another slip of paper in there, they're going to be probably be looking for their bill and not paying attention. But if you put it, you live in zone one and your amount due is, people may, yeah. you know, because yeah, they're going to pay attention to how much they owe. I think we're belaboring the zone issue, and it's just a lot more to what, what you're talking about here. I think it's really important, but, um, you know, I'm worried about, are we, are we training our staff in advance of an emergency to actually staff the emergency shelter? I'm, I'm, I'm worried so about that. So, so we weren't. But right. we, we, did, we scrambled that literally that week. So and unfortunately, did, we didn't and have a lot of folks in our shelters. Are. But we right. don't, but he's going to walk you through. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So great transition. Uh, real quick, I, there's no reason why we couldn't put them in the bills. And if it's online banking that you do, having on the website for, for you know, HRSD and and rubs, I mean, we can make sure that there are high-tech and low-tech methods to communicate before, during, and after an incident, because we know that f some folks aren't reliant on technology, uh, so we do the best we can throughout the whole spectrum of communications. Uh, so yes, everyone that presented themselves at a shelter was sheltered. So we could say, done, we, we knocked that out of the park, but we didn't. So we know that there were lessons learned that when the governor said mandatory evacuation, some of our staff who works in shelters um, said, nope, we're, at, we're out. We live in evacuation zone A. You know, we, we're going to beat feet. We're going to take our family somewhere else. So that whole process of not only identifying who's going to be next on those shelter workers, communicating to them early and often, even at the beginning of hurricane season, and then providing the necessary training uh, to make sure that they can do that is something that we're looking at. Also, uh, Deputy City Manager Catherine Weitzel had led an effort to look at um, opportunities where we have a, a task force, if you will, those folks who are interested in working in a shelter, making sure that they're on the, not only the first on the list, but again, the most trained and most qualified folks to provide that type of accommodations in our shelters. I will say meals and snacks, again, Norfolk Public Schools, Fantastic job providing meals that they had in their inventory for those shelters that were in our schools. Uh, Mercy Chefs, fantastic. Again, meals that they provided for those who are in our recreation centers and American Red Cross coming through with snacks uh, to make sure everyone is well fed. Wi-Fi is in our shelter had been a cantankerous issue in the past. We had that. Verizon Wireless stepped up at no cost to make sure that our shelters had Wi-Fi capability. Again, this is all about Team Norfolk. And then the data analysis, uh, again, Stephen DeBerry's GIS team did a fantastic job. Information that we would receive from the state, usually in the form of a spreadsheet with just a lot of data, they were able to do their GIS magic and turn data into information that provided some excellent analysis for not only the response efforts, but for future planning as well. Yes, ma'am. The shelter was city building. Yes. Well, Correct. Two, uh, so some shelters were schools and some were recreation centers. So we have schools and recreation centers that don't have Wi-Fi? Well, it, I think it's more of a, the Wi-Fi is there, um, but it's it's more controlled as far as who has access, administrative rights, and everything else. So it was actually easier and able to accomplish, accomplish what we wanted for that Wi-Fi area. But like we have rec centers yes. that don't have free Wi-Fi? Yes. Yes. Why? It's a huge issue. It's, um, it's not inexpensive, whereas, um, I can address, they're, they're not in most rec centers. We're looking at that. They are pretty expensive to do that, but there's some other alternatives. Okay. Agreed. We, we need to talk about that. Agreed.
because we send kids there to do homework and stuff, and they need to, anyway. I'll, I'm okay. well, taking the soapbox. To no, 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 we'll follow up that, and that'll be in our after action. Uh, and another thing in our after action is the medically friendly sheltering. Again, this is a challenging issue that we've faced for, for so long because no one particular organization department um, can handle it. Uh, and, and those to whom we would typically look uh, are able to provide different types of sheltering, but this is gonna have to be a team solution. And the equipment, again, the equipment's there. So those who require more than basic first aid in a shelter, but not to the level of hospital care, we have equipment that was purchased through Homeland Security grant dollars to provide that type of, of um, accommodations, realistic accommodations. Um, perhaps a solution is working with some of our private partners, and we have. We're working with Lake Taylor, having those discussions, as well as Bon Secours, uh, Centera. Or perhaps the solution is regional, and we have scheduled uh, conversations with Virginia Beach, who uses the field house, a very large uh, facility where we might be able to partner on that. So there is more to come on that. I'd like to say that there is a, a promising uh, future in that area, because it's been, again, a challenge for several years, since I've been here, in fact, uh, and I think there's a solution on the horizon, so there will be more to come on that. Uh, um, sir. Um, yes, sir. Jim, um, tell me about the NEST program. I got some feedback from a church recently about um, when an event happens, whether snow or whatever, that because it's on a rotating basis, that that church may end up getting stuck um, housing the NEST program for extra longer period of time. And if it's a snow event, um, clearing the church parking lot and they the recommendation was that could there be a more centrally city location maybe like the bottom of scope or something that you could house during those period of times where you may have ice for a week or something um, that could be better service rather than a church that may end up getting stuck with that and I, I don't know if that's true I just uh, it, it is just true. feedback that came back from one of the churches that's a great question, and it is true. And, and one of the uh, challenges is also the logistics of moving folks back and forth between day and night. And so we're looking at this point, and I don't know if this is on your list of um, perhaps uh, one of the rec centers just being a location. Yes, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Skip that. That. But yeah. It's, it's uh, Yes, it was a um, an issue for us, and we think we fixed it. Yeah. And then if it happens to be at a church that's on another side of the city, right. trying to get right. everybody there can that's be an good. issue. Okay. So, sir, since you mentioned uh, it's, it's not part of this briefing, but I have to uh, give a huge thanks to Operation Blessing because Ann O'Dell, who is coordinating the, the logistics, busing, and everything else for this year's NEST program, they were essentially without busing accommodations. They had lost their bus contract, and the private sector uh, contractors who might have been interested, the prices that they were giving was something that the NEST program could just not meet. So uh, in conversations, uh, all, we're, we're, we're meeting with Operation all the time, Operation Blessing all the time, and they told us that they are very interested in helping uh, more in the community and more specifically our residents experiencing homelessness. So I went with them with an ask. No expectations that said, you know, I know this is part of your mission. I know this is part of your interest. Here's our need. And they have uh, given us, through a grant, over $15,000 to assist us with busing for this year's um, you know, homeless population in the NEST program. So um, they deserve absolute thanks. And again, if, without them, uh, we probably wouldn't be as successful as we are so far this year. Um, so in terms of the special needs sheltering, uh, it, it's a great transition into the STIR initiative, and, and Ms. McClellan is very aware of this. Uh, we were able to put in for a, a project, a, 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 a 
proposed project for pre-registration, letting folks know exactly what the accommodations are going to be in, in whatever shelter. Uh, and, and again, whatever shelter we open will be dependent on the incident itself. But here's the shelters and here's the accommodations that they can meet. So if we're able to identify who those folks outside of the homeless population who might be going to these shelters, we can communicate to them what the accommodations are, what the rules are, and likewise, we can ask them what special accommodations might you, might you need. And that way we can plan even better uh, and, and really speed folks up through the registration process if they're able to do that online. So that's something that we're working uh, with the, uh, the STIR initiative and hopefully we'll have some more outcomes from that. Uh, I already mentioned the unified restoration of services. We have to make sure that we're all working with the incident command system. And I mentioned uh, the great work uh, that I'm really excited about with neighborhood development and Michelle and her folks. Next, Kim. Infrastructure. So this isn't something that we were able to, to observe through this incident. Uh, primarily, again, with all of the storm heading our way, we made all the necessary preparations for sheltering and the human piece. Infrastructure, I can tell you, and, and Richard, hopefully keep me, keep me honest, Adherence to the plans, policies, and procedures were, were down. They do that. They do it very well, uh, whether it's a winter storm or a hurricane or a nor'easter. Uh, their folks are out there. They're out there clearing drains and ditches. Uh, they're going to do trash pickup until they can't any longer. Um, we opened up parking garages, as did, uh, again, Old Dominion University opened up five garages for us. And working with Norfolk Public Schools, they opened up a lot of their parking lots as well. So. Uh, finding folks parking safe havens for their vehicles so they don't flood is something that, that we do very well, I think, every time. And again, big thanks to ODU, uh, Norfolk Public Schools, and our partners uh, for helping with that as well. The Safe Store. If you've never heard of the Cape Rise, I need to take you on a field trip to the Cape Rise. It is a very big vessel. It's over in Portsmouth, and they accommodate a lot of our equipment. And when I say equipment, I don't mean generators. I mean vehicle equipment. That vessel is not going anywhere. It's not going to be disturbed by the wave activity, and they provide this service at no cost to the localities throughout Hampton Roads. So I'll just, if I can, Kim, if you can just go up one slide, just to give you a few pictures of what that looks like. Again, this thing, when you go into that main first deck, you'll be, it'll be your vessel, or I'm sorry, your, your equipment will be put on an elevator and taken to one of at least five or six different decks on that vessel. Um, so again, our vehicles can be safe during the storm and then retrieved right afterwards in great working condition and brought back to Norfolk to go back to work really quickly. Can you go backwards one more? So one thing, again, this is on me, is logistical needs for field personnel. We need to figure out, and right now it's, it's every department to determine what they're able to provide for their, their staff, uh, the staff on whom we're going to rely on for response and recovery. So whether it's a base staging area for them to sleep, uh, for sheltering or for food, that's something that I think we can collectively get together and, and work through uh, to have a unified plan throughout the city. Building access when city is closed, that should simply be uh, an addition to our continuity of operations plan that says if this building's gonna be closed because municipal operations are, are paused, then these folks will have access to that facility. Align the generator availability with resource reliant on power. Um, so we've, we've already started working with Nikki Riddick and the general services to determine what generators we have and what those needs are for the different uh, pump stations, re equipment, or vehicles, uh, or facilities to make sure that we can marry them up. And whatever that nexus is, work with our partners to see how quickly we can get a generator, uh, along with you know, understanding what the fuel makeup is, uh, the fuel type, all that stuff. 
And then trash pickup marketing campaign, letting folks know that Public Works is going to continue picking up trash and recycling as, as, as you know, immediately or as long as possible. And I'm sure you've, you've heard enough briefings to know, whether it's winter storm or hurricanes, that that's the number one question to the city is, when is my trash going to get picked up? Uh, so we can do a better job communicating that out to the community. And likewise, one thing, uh, can you go, well, that's fine. One more thing that I need to do is not only communicate what a catastrophic incident looks like, but really try to find out from the departments what their pinch point is. And Mr. Smith has said that a number of times. What is that point by which you can no longer operate with your own resources? And so, again, with the catastrophic storms that have been out there, there's, there's certainly studies after action reports. So you might recall the 9-11 Commission report where they said that there was a lack of imagination, lack of creativity. That shouldn't be the case for us. There's been enough storms that happened before us that we can set a, a firm foundation of what a catastrophic incident looks like. And then really through that gap analysis, you know, approach each department to say, okay, we understand that you have these resources and commodities for this type of incident. Well, what about this type? And then again, from there, uh, really pushing the envelope to figure out exactly what we can do and then where we need to rely on others. Uh, and then public safety, I'll, I'll breeze through this, uh, which is unfortunate because our police and fire partners and the sheriff's department and 911, they're just, they act superbly before and uh, during and after an incident. Uh, we did find, again, a, a fantastic partner with the sheriff's office uh, staff in our shelters to augment what we had uh, because obviously the courts aren't going to be in session. So we really worked with, uh, with the sheriff to determine how we can best work as a team for that incident and then henceforth. So again, fantastic partner with the sheriff's office. And then lastly, public information. Uh, we made uh, excellent strides in the press conference that we did, the first press conference that we've had, uh, particularly with a sign language interpreter. Again, as we make sure that our messaging to the community is timely, actionable, accurate, and accessible, making sure that we have sign language interpreters is, is exactly what we need to do, because otherwise we're going to miss uh, a significant segment of our population. Kudos to the Norfolk Cares Call Center. Uh, they worked 24-7 throughout the incident. Um, and the Joint Information Center, those folks, Michael Brown, Lori Crouch, their team of MARCOM uh, really came together to, to work out their hot sheets and really collaborate messaging from various partners. So it was a, a one voice for this one team. Uh, lastly, the, the TV, AV technical issues, which were expected in a new EOC environment, uh, which Stephen DeBerry and his folks overcame, we're just going to invest in more, knowing that that's going to be the new EOC location uh, for now on, uh, knowing where to put uh, telephones so folks don't have to run across the room, uh, better coordination with the Virginia Department of Emergency Management for their press briefings, because they would have some, and we wouldn't always know about it, so we would have to try to follow up that way, uh, and then defining what mandatory evacuation means. Um, that, that's a challenge as well, uh, especially if it's something that's not going to be or cannot be enforced. What does mandatory evacuation uh, mean? or what other words might be necessary to really communicate the threat, the severity, um, instead of, you know, we strongly encourage you to, to evacuate. So with that, Kim, um, moving forward, commitment to, common, uh, to, to constant improvement. We are always looking for that next opportunity to improve. Uh, and we know that the issues that we have are primarily human, uh, not technical or resources. So again, Team Norfolk, we're all about working together and, and we'll be able to achieve a lot of this. And I'm looking forward to coming back with you with a report on all these things that have been accomplished. Uh, this will result in planning updates and revisions. Those are already in place. Uh, and then we're going to continuously train and exercises. And we'd love to have you be a part of those training and exercises as well. 
So with that, Mr. Smith, I'll turn it over for any questions. So to Mayor, members of Council, unfortunately, the, um, you know, the severity and frequency of these incidents is just um, increasing. And so um, uh, we're getting better and better, uh, but the intensity gets greater and greater. And so I think part of the, maybe the main message here is um, this one pushed us a little harder than, than some in terms of resources and the, and the time those resources were out. And you saw on that last slide, we had some, uh, you know, we can get through a two or three day incident with some people that really killed themselves. Um, but uh, what we learned this time was we sent some people home and we brought some newer, younger people in and, and, and taught them how to, how, to run show, how to run the show and how to do, do that piece. And this will be a constantly evolving, constantly learning uh, exercise. But Jim, I appreciate the update. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah, so, Jim, yeah. thank you very much. Um, thank you. So one of the things I think we need to do is probably have this as a retreat okay. topic so that we can spend some, some quality time on something as comprehensive as this. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk uh, about uh, residents who may be on um, medication or need assistance, 24-hour uh, medical assistance in our shelters, uh, what, what type of uh, capital that's going to require, uh, more about the collaboration and coordinating with, with external agencies, uh, what resources may be needed in the future. Um, this was a good drill, good planning, um, but there's a lot that we didn't get a chance to talk about, and I think that I would like for you to bring this back at a retreat so we really can do a deep dive to really understand um, how we will respond in the event there is a need to really have multiple shelters and a lot of residents um, in those shelters to be sheltered for an extended period of time. What does that look like? And are we prepared to, to handle uh, an event and, you know, citywide? Okay, um, I saw Tommy, then I saw Mamie. So, Doug, I don't want to jinx you. <laughs> you but usually I want to talk do. about snow. <laughs> we dodged a bullet yeah, this week with really the did. big snowstorm. Um, at the last discussion about snow, I had suggested about putting signs up on our primary and secondary routes. That's something that we could create in-house that marks where those roads are, and that also there needed to be a little bit of tweaking um, to those uh, primary and secondary routes that were being cleared. Um, after some other changes were made that we were, and I just, you know, the, we're going to see an increase in the amount of these events as well. So we're going to have a snowstorm uh, probably this winter. Um, I just want to be ready for it. Um, and as we move into the period where we're not meeting as much again in the wintertime, I just want to make sure that we're updated with any changes and improvements that you guys may have made. Um, and you... Um, the tax increase included some money for new equipment that I think you guys were going to buy a few extra snow plows as well as part of that. So a, a good update on that. You don't have to do it now, yeah. but something for us maybe in a follow-up would be helpful just as we start sharing that because uh, I wouldn't have been ready for this snow event if it happened. I was watching that snow line come so close to us. Um, glad we didn't get it, but um, it's bound to happen. Maybe then Courtney. I just had uh, two things um, in reference to the snow. Mm -hmm. um, number one, I know that council some time ago requested a list of the primary and secondary roads, if we could possibly get those, because we did have some discussion um, concerning that, and we wanted to know why some roads were considered primary and others weren't. Um, Mr. Reddick, um, you mentioned uh, shelter training. Um, Miss Lori Crouch, you put out, I think today, 
yes, today, shelter training 2019 classes. Is that what you're it's referring to? Okay, that's what I, I want to know. Thank you. Thank you. And Lori, what was the number? The first time, time that went out, how many, that was voluntary. How many folks signed up? It, it was, was packed. Yeah. Following up on Tommy's conversation, <laughs> I, have so, I also would like to see what are we doing to collaborate with our regional cities because okay. the snows don't end at the borders. So if we need to keep going down Sand Road and Virginia Beach, or if we need to keep going down Military and Virginia Beach, or Virginia Beach Boulevard, what are we doing with our sister cities so that we're plowing successfully for many yeah. and not just truly stopping at the borders? The general consensus in the past, Courtney, has been that probably Virginia Beach needs to come into Norfolk. Well, that's because fine. ours at the border at the border is where it kind of gets a little crappy and getting into Norfolk. So that's where just kind of been the consensus. Whatever the direction may be, so it doesn't end yeah. the border. So I think it's can we do a better job collaborating? Remember the last last year we were fortunate, at least in the early part of the storm, we got a lot of support from BDOT in those first couple of days, which makes a big difference. And if you remember that storm. A follow-up storm came to the west, and we lost all those, all that support. So, uh, without the VDOT support, it, it puts a real burden on us to keep the primary roads. Um, we still paid VDOT. We still we oh, yeah. pay them. Oh yeah. So my question that last time was, is it just better for us to spend the money on our own contractors or equipment instead of relying on VDOT, who pulled out and left us hanging? Right. It's, it's a uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, they, they've got the obviously the resources, they've got the equipment. We've talked about the fact that it's difficult for us to, to uh, buy uh, substantial extra equipment. Uh, we are, as you said, we did set up to where the new vehicles we bring in will have the ability to put a plow on that sort of thing. So I think we'll have more assets. Okay. All right. All right. Thank Thanks. you. All right. So, um, e-scooters. Uh, so, Jessica Dennis, uh, management analyst in the city manager's office, is going to give you an update and a recommendation of a, a pilot program and an RFP that will out as quickly as the end of the year if you all are in agreement. Good evening, City Council, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Manager. Uh, I was last year back on October 9th and at that time gave a quick briefing on the situation regarding scooters in Norfolk and promised that I would return with a final recommendation as Mr. Smith mentioned, which is why I'm here this evening. So really quickly, um, I'll refresh all of our memories. Since last time we talked about this, it was in October. Uh, then jump right into what staff's recommendation is and then uh, give you insight into how we got here and some of the case study cities or example cities we've looked to throughout the country as we came to this decision. Um, and then close up with some next steps. So just as I mentioned, refresh everyone's memories. Starting August 29th, Bird began dropping their scooters into our right-of-way without authorization. In response, staff from the city attorney's office and the right-of-way division reached out to Bird to communicate regarding ways that Bird could legally operate in our city, and uh, the requests for documentation were not fully complied with on Bird's side. So in response, our right-of-way staff has continued to collect and impound scooters as they've appeared. Uh, when I was here on October 9th, there, we had about 400 scooters in our possession, and that is, number has since grown to 520 um, that are currently impounded, though I do not think we have collected any recently. Is that correct? Thank you. Yes. Um, and so also during the same period of time, we staff assembled a work group that consisted of various city departments as well as some of our community stakeholders who are also impacted by scooters appearing on our sidewalk. So those stakeholders included Norfolk State, Old Dominion, Downtown Norfolk Council, and Elizabeth River Trail Foundation. It's possible I forgot something, and I do apologize to any organization if I did forget you. 
Um, so the purpose of this group was to help identify some of the considerations we needed to look to as we developed what we thought would be a good path forward for scooters. So some things we looked at were the public safety component. If scooters were introduced into the city, where could they safely ride? Are there, should there be restrictions for riding at night for visibility purposes? And also education and communication. How do we inform our residents who both want to use the scooters and who also don't want to be negatively impacted by them what, what the expectations are? Um, so closing that up, uh, presented some of those considerations during my presentation on the 9th and promised to come back with recommendation. And as Mr. Smith alluded to, uh, staff's recommendation at this time, should you wish to move forward, is a one-year pilot program with a vendor or vendors selected through an RFP process. Uh, if we move forward, staff sees this pilot program beginning sometime in the spring once the weather warms up, and it's more likely that people would be willing to scoot across town. Um, the RFP process is the same that we engage to bring in our existing bike share partner, Pace. So, and this is also, um, issuing an RFP gives us the opportunity to outline what we as a city see as necessary components for a program such as this. So some of the items I mentioned before, public safety, education, um, and data sharing, and recognizes that we as city staff may not be industry experts in what is admittedly a very new industry. And so RFP gives the opportunity for vendors to bring to us what are some of the more cutting edge things that they can bring and help us stru structure what is the best fit, fit for Norfolk, both to enhance our existing multimodal transportation system while also preserving our responsibility to provide a safe access to all, right away for all of our residents. So as you can see at the bottom of the slide, uh, with your authorization to move forward, we would issue an RFP by the end of the year uh, with the goal to select a vendor sometime over the winter and roll out the pilot in the spring. Um, and the reason I say vendor or vendors, we're open to one or more depending on what it feels like the best fit for us. So how did we get here? And um, as I mentioned, staff did not do this on our own. We partnered with other organizations uh, in, as our, in our stakeholder work group. We also reached out to other cities across the country. This is not a new problem just for Norfolk. This is something new that other communities across the country are trying to find the right balance for providing a service or amenity to people who would like to use it while also ensuring safe use of this immunity. Pardon me, this amenity. Um, so through this various through these two avenues, we came to the conclusion that our goal for whatever we came forward with as a recommendation had to find a way to, to complement our existing transportation network, but also preserve our duty for public safety, um, which is why a pilot program seems like the right fit for this. It gives us opportunity to evaluate whether this makes sense. Does the, is this actually an amenity that residents and visitors use in our city, or is it, does it become more of a nuisance and is not the right answer for Norfolk long term? Uh, one year gives about the right amount of time. We go through all seasons to see what utilization is and if it were to become a long-term program, does it, is it something we would want year-round and how do we adjust for changes in weather conditions or as uh, in extreme weather and how our vendor responds. Um, as I mentioned, a pilot program is not an abnormal way to engage the scooter community. Many cities across the country have done this. Uh, and for the exact same reasons I've mentioned, 
it, this is a testing ground and it's, it gives the opportunity for flexibility. In Virginia, Charlottesville and Arlington County have rolled out pilot programs. I believe in news article released yesterday or today that Harrisonburg is considering a pilot program during their council meeting this week. And Richmond, I know, has proposed and discussed a pilot program, but I, as of my last research, I don't think it was adopted and rolled out, and so I think it might still be pending. So that leads me into some of the case studies we looked at. I mentioned we reached out to other communities, and I will say this is just a sample of some of the cities we've looked to. This is, across the country, a new technology that many localities are trying to figure out and integrate into their existing systems. Um, so start off with, I'll highlight Arlington here in the Commonwealth. It is, I believe, the farthest along in their pilot project, though not by much. They are in the, at the very beginning of a nine-month pilot project. It began some, this fall, and they have authorized three vendors to operate in the city, Bird, Lime, and Lyft. Uh, and right now, the county is engaging in a community outreach campaign to educate both resi residents and potential users on what the e-scooter technology is capable of, but also what this pilot program consists of. Next, Austin. Uh, Austin is at a slightly different place. They have gotten to a point with their uh, shared mobility program that they're actually using the data they've collected to begin creating a regulatory framework for, for responding to the different issues that arise, such as where do scooters park? Uh, do they want scooters to be in this, to utilize their sidewalks? How fast can scooters go in different parts of the city? Uh, do they wish to restrict scooters or allow them um, on some of their recreation trails? That's been a new pilot program introducing scooters to various recreation trails in Austin. And also out today, the Center for Disease Control announced that they will be conducting an epidemiological study in Austin to look at uh, the impact of scooters on safety in the roadways. So there have been a few reports of vehicular accidents involving scooters, and uh, the question was raised within our internal work group, but also among other localities, are, are these safe? Is there, is, there really, is there more of a safety factor than we realize? And um, the feedback we've gotten to this far, thus far has been, with the way that 911 calls are called in or police reports are filed, it's not always clear if it was a electric scooter involved or how an accident occurred. So with this study, hopefully countrywide, we should get a better answer as to is this more dangerous than we think it is. Uh, so finally, I'll highlight Santa Monica, California. I mentioned in my October 9th presentation, uh, it is the hometown of Bird, and so therefore seen as kind of ground zero for electric scooters, uh, and they just rolled out a 16-month pilot program, and their their goal is to, something unique about theirs is they have what they call a dynamic capping system. So through that, they will use uh, performance metrics that they have communicated out to all of their vendors, and that will uh, dictate how many vehicles any one time those vendors can have in their city. And so the performance metrics they're looking towards uh, for allowing scooters are uh, the vendors' maintenance, education, safety, customer service, and data sharing. Um, so should we move forward, of course, staff will continue to monitor what these programs look like in the cities and what data comes out of them because it's, it's not, this isn't a static environment. It's changing all the time. And 
the lessons learned from these cities are helping inform us, and hopefully, if we move forward, some of the just some of the advances we make in our city can help dictate uh, future future pilot programs and others. Uh, so, is that excuse me? With that, uh, our next steps would be for you, City Council, to decide if you wish to move forward with the pilot program allowing scooters in Norfolk. And if so, uh, we, we will definitely use the data collected to provide regular updates. And uh, I'll, with that, I'll open up for questions. Um, one thing I would ask, if we decide to move forward with the, the pilot program, the data, the data that you're going to collect, uh, I know that you will collect traffic infections, maybe uh, information from our first responders if there's a collision. Um, but what about interviews, interviewing people who are enjoying uh, the scooter? And, and, and so to get that data analysis and get an interpretation, uh, because if you just only collect when there's a collision and there's traffic you know, infraction or some code enforcement. Um, that's what you would bring us. Yeah. So, what's your what's your methodology? Engagement. What's your methodology uh, of getting being holistic and being global in, in your in your pilot program? So, we definitely would have quantitative data that we would collect or that the vendor would collect and share with us. So, uh, number of users, where they're using, and that type of stuff. But one interesting component of um, the Austin program that I think is would be beneficial for us to translate over here is part of the data they're using to inform their regulatory process is community outreach. They can, they've done community meetings where they've collected feedback. They've also conducted an online survey. Uh, so collecting that and doing it in a slightly more scientific way than just you know comments on a news article actively and intentionally uh, reaching out to our community and seeing what the feedback is. Is our community using it? Are, is it our residents who are using it? Uh, or is it people who are visiting and that type of thing? I think that qualitative mm -hmm. uh, data, that, that experience, <coughs> would be helpful. Um, so before, if we decide to do this, um, what are you asking us to uh, approve? Do you have, uh, you showed the, the case studies from other cities. So if you go for if you all agree that you want to move forward with this as a as a um, transportation alternative for us here in Norfolk, then we would um, put out a request for proposals to see who would come in for a, a one year pilot, whether that's one vendor or more. We'll bring you back to us. Okay, so Andrea did Angela. Um, so I, I, I have no problem. I think going forward with the pilot RP is a great idea, but um, I don't understand the details. I mean, we are are they gonna be allowed on sidewalks, bike lanes? Any street, only streets of 25 miles an hour, helmets required, not required. Um, so that's part of that fence? proposal. What is the proposal? What, you're, what yeah, are you I proposing? Don't know what, I, I don't know. So it's hard for me to say yes, I approve it without having a little more detail. So as for far as where riders could ride, we have chosen to adopt the same policy of rules of the road for adult cyclists. So preference would be that you use a bike lane first and foremost. You can ride in the roadway if it's under 25 miles per hour. Um, and a prohibition on using sidewalks in the downtown area, which I believe is currently prohibited for cyclists, um, and with the opportunity to prohibit uh, sidewalk riding in pedestrian overlays should those communities wish. Do you offense? Do you we, we, we are... Like they're as, doing in most other cities? Yes, so as part of our RP, we're asking all vendors to provide their um, 
proof of their ability to geofence and examples of geofencing pro programs they have in place. And once a vendor is... Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, so geofencing is a technology in which the operator, the scooter company, programs in to the communication between their system and the scooters that it's essentially uh, an electronic fence or wall around a location. I'll use City Hall as an example. If we didn't want scooters operated in the municipal complex, uh, we asked the, the operator to program that scooters, once they hit this digital wall around the City Hall, the scooter would slow to either a complete stop. There are two options. You can go to a complete stop, so the scooter could not be operated in this area, or it would slow to uh, just an extremely slow speed. I think it's under five miles per hour, um, making it unpleasant and, to ride or just untenable. And so then the users would be would have to take it out. Um, and to prevent users from just leave abandoning the vehicle in these geofence areas, so you don't have a pileup of vehicles around your uh, what an area that you don't want e-scooters uh, accessing. Vendors also have preferred parking areas, so they create incentives for their users to park in preferred parking zones by reducing the cost to the user. They also will penalize uh, bad, bad behavior, so if you do try to abandon it, uh, one option is uh, the way you access a scooter. You log in on an app on your phone, you create an account, has your debit card information, and you start running a tab similar to your Uber rides or your, the existing bike share program that we have. Um, so in situations where a user tries to leave a, a scooter where they're not authorized to, they would not be able to complete their ride and close out of the program. So they would still be running a tab. Uh, so there's a financial disincentive to abandoning a scooter in a place where it should not be abandoned if there are places in the city that we wish to designate as no scooter zones. Sorry. Yeah, I'm going to go yeah. to Angela, but I think um, it, it appears that there's already a methodology formulated with your committee. And as you talked about, we will put out an RFP with defined terms and already definitions. I think that will be helpful yeah. because so we'll you're, you're explaining it, but we don't have it in front of us. So why don't so, we get you a copy before we issue this of, of showing you exactly what, what's going to go out so you'll know what the parameters are. I think it will be helpful. Okay, Angela, then Martin, are you, you, you parked? Okay, Angela. Tommy, Do we have anything um, in place as far as regulatory concerns or, or uh, regulatory statutes for private users, those who have scooters who would not be utilizing the ride share? And as far as the 520 scooters that we have from Bird, how are we going to get the money that they owe us and can we issue an injunction <laughs> against them so that they can't drop any more birds in our area? Um, the the uh, collection can be difficult, um, so, so that's uh, in progress. So um, if we don't get paid for the collection and storage, can then we sell we, them at yeah, some point yes, time? Yes, we can. Okay. And so that may be all that we end up uh, getting. Um, that there is some regulation for private scooters, mm -hmm. so that they're not uh, currently permitted on the streets. Okay. Uh, and, and I think they're not permitted, and I'm not sure how we treat them on the sidewalks right now. Maybe we don't address them at all on the sidewalks. We um, have just recently permitted uniforms. Bicycles. Yeah, it, we Fun. treat them like it needs, it needs to be. Whatever we, we issue with an RFP and a pilot program, 
needs to be considered for e-scooters, and also we should be looking at e-bikes as a future option as well. I mean, those, these are all these are all future initiatives. And and if if Bird doesn't pay for their storage fees, are they considered um, eligible to be participate in the RFP? If they pay their fee, if they do not, are they eligible to participate? Uh, in the RFP? So um, I spoke with uh, Christina on in purchasing today about this exact issue because it has come up, and we're including a provision in the RFP that any vendor who submits does have to be in good financial standing with the city, um, meaning they would have had to pay any outstanding fees or fines. And right. there's still not a Angela? money collecting interest. Yes. Daily storage it's a daily storage fee. I know it's a daily storage fee, but is it collecting interest on the daily storage fee? No. I don't think we charge interest. We can charge interest. <laughs> interest. <laughs> okay. uh, we, we may be. Let us take a look at you that. So. Okay. Right. So okay, maybe. Miss <laughs> just uh, Miss uh, Miss Frida, um, when was the last drop in October for Bird? It was sometime. In, it was sometime right before Thanksgiving. Okay. All right. Thank you. I just think we need to have a lot of accountability and hooks into these vendors so that they just can't get away with whatever they choose to do based on their business model. I think it's a great opportunity for the city to engage in this type of mobility, mm -hmm. but within our parameters and our rules and our guidelines so that we're not left behind holding the bag when they choose to either leave the market, leave the product, or whatever. So I think we need to take the long view on this. Well, I think it's a good opportunity again for mobility, but it needs to be on our terms and conditions. And as Mr. Smith mentioned, we will provide a copy of the RFP that is drafted. And included in that, we do recognize that we don't want this to be overly burdensome to the city. There will be some staff involvement by default because it's in our right-of-way. We will deal with uh, residents who want to come to the city if they have questions. Uh, but we are asking whatever vendor comes forward that they have to provide maintenance and rebalance and they have to go collect misplaced scooters. We're trying to to mimic some of the beneficial components of our bike share program, um, but also create a little more uh, control in recognizing that a scooter is a lot easier to move around than a bike that has to be chained to uh, a bike rack or some other structure. Timelines for rebalancing, mm -hmm. timelines for collection. I mean, there's a lot that we need to put in here that we have in our control and we're not left alone here. Okay. All right, Tommy? What is the age of riding these? Is it 16? I think it's, it's 18. 18. Mm. Yeah, 16. I thought that it was 18 for Bird. Well, the reason why, I, look, I'm not a fan of the, I don't know if I'm going to support this, but um, I like our pace bikes and so just leave it at that. But um, we'll see as we get closer to it. But maybe an opportunity to provide transportation for students in school if they're 16 and older and can ride them, that maybe there's a, a student, like a free student card or something that they can use them to get back and forth to school. Just an idea to throw in there or the RFP. I don't know if anybody else is doing that. But um, I like just bikes. I'm happy with pace bikes. Courtney. I, like I also do like the idea that it's just a pilot because again if this thing yeah. fails, no, no, we're gonna pull them the street and move on. And I like the idea of more than one vendor so that we're not beholden to one. And nor are residents and guests and visitors and tourists. Mark, you wanna say anything? You good? I'm ready to ride. Yeah. Ready to ride. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ready to scoop. Jessica, thank you. All right, Jessica, thank you, Jessica. Very much. Jessica. So right. I'll ask you to pull out your calendars yes, at sir. So, Ms. Johnson, if, if you would not, I think there was some noise, if you could say that for the camera. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to officially, for the record, to say that um, City Manager um, 
Doug Smith and team did a great job on our calendar for the upcoming um, year for 2019. I think that you took into you have enough meetings? Yep, you gotta have one of them. So let me let me talk you through sort of um, what we did. I'm, I'm not finished. <laughs> <laughs> it is your birthday, right? Um, oh, is it yes. your birthday? Mr. Manager, I, I want to say you listened to what we we had to say, um, and thank you to my colleagues as well. Now I'm finished. I want to echo that too. Um, the consistency piece of a second and fourth. Monday night, which is kind of like what we started with, and other than when we have a holiday proceeding, the Tuesday night council meeting, I thought, I think it's very important for us to be able to tell constituents when there are meetings and not have to look at our calendar to figure it out. And so I greatly appreciate, um, I greatly appreciate that. Um, I've also asked for um, an add-on to when we, when we went to um, the flexibility of meetings, the um, request for um, taking that 30-day language out of the charter was not included. So I would like it if we um, if we we can't go according to our charter can't go more than 30 days without a meeting. And and you know I'd like to have that. I mean we have the ability to add meetings if we need to, but um, I'd like to have that particular language removed. It just gives us a little bit more flexibility, um, especially in the summer. I discussed some concerns earlier about um, agendas getting too big and making sure that, that we respect people who are putting applications in for restaurants and things like that, particularly January, February, March. We only have three meetings from January to March. And you guys know I'm the person who says no meetings, so I just want to make sure that we may have to have some flexibility in there if the planning commission agenda gets too overwhelmed to let these people open. Um, it's, it's part of being a uh, business-friendly city, and we're delaying um, people being able to open in some cases because of our agenda um, a whole month in some cases where they're going to be waiting. Um, my only other concern is, and I've requested this when we went to two retreats a year um, for those that have full-time jobs and taking leave, I, I would request that the September retreat be on a Friday that goes into a Saturday morning um, and that we can do the review of the um, appointed council members on a Saturday morning. That way all the staff doesn't have to be there uh, for that and the people that we're reviewing are getting paid big bucks so they can come in on a Saturday and get reviewed. But maybe we could do an all-day Friday um, do our dinner on a Friday night and then come back on a Saturday morning to the review. That way, I know, Courtney, you have to take off from work too. Um, you know, Angela's selling houses, so anyway, um, Saturdays are good days to show houses. But just to, to be flexible, since we are doing the February one and the, the September one, maybe we could look at that option. But I thought the February one was only one day anyway. Two days. No, it's back for two days. It's back for two days. Okay. All right, so, um, Tommy, you were finished? That's it. Okay. Andrea. Oh, I, I might be candid, Tom, but I, there are eight of the 12 months here, we only have one formal session. I, I'm very concerned about that. I don't understand why. So let me talk you through what, what we heard. Okay. Which was um, no, third, uh, no third Tuesday meeting because of um, a conflict with St. Paul's advisory group. Sure. Um, no Tuesday after a Monday holiday, so that creates some of the challenges. I'm not sure I understand that. Why is that? No that Tuesday was, that was, that holiday. was. 
frankly, some conversation we had in here that seemed, seemed to have consensus. I don't have an issue with coming Tuesday. After, I mean, Monday holiday, I appreciate people coming back Monday, maybe Tuesday morning, but by Tuesday night. So that's, that seems to be a lot of the issue here. Traditionally, we just haven't done it on the Tuesday after holiday. Just traditionally. We, just we have, have or have not? Have not. You can go back to, you can go back several years and look at calendars. And traditionally, we just haven't had Is there, I, I, a Tuesday meeting after a holiday. Okay. I, I just trying to figure out, I mean, I just, I just worried that we, as, as Tommy said, I just don't think we have enough times to meet. And also, we have people who, who we have staff who may take off on a Friday. So we have a lot of time on a, when you have a Monday holiday, you have a, you have a skeleton staff on Friday, getting all the stuff done and then coming in from a holiday weekend or people who may take up on a Tuesday if there's a Monday holiday as well. So Douglas, do we, when do we have to adopt? I'd like to vote next week. Let me, let me give the last okay. two or three things just to, so we had, you asked for stay away from, uh, obviously a lot of y'all are gone, NLC, BML. So that generally each of those costs us and uh, the August recess. Um, so th that's what sort of, with those parameters, that got us the dates uh, that we ended up with and the elimination of the meetings that we eliminated. And then the one thing I want to draw your, your attention to is that the work sessions um, start at 4 with the idea that we get done at 6 and that the uh, informal sessions um, start at 4.30. So oh. the idea, not the idea, but right, the Tom, I would propose putting January 22nd back on. I don't look at uh, Martin Luther King as a traveling holiday for people, but I would say that would at least give us a one meeting. I mean, we, we would have almost, uh, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, se almost seven weeks before we would have a formal meeting that would at least put a okay. buffer in that. Okay. Either the 22nd or the 29th. Yeah, or, or you could do it at the end of the month if that's... What about, uh, what about February the 19th after President's Day? So, Doug, let's add those two back. We always can revisit that if we have to. Um, no, I, I, th I the think 19th is a Thursday. It's a third Tuesday. Tuesday. And that's a third. Um, that's a third. That's the St. Paul's Park. St. Paul's, yeah. That's not a normal practice. Yeah, that wouldn't be a normal day anyway. Sure. But one of the issues, too, we also have had this year, we've had some Winter, correct me if I'm wrong, but just about every work session has been a tour, right? So we really mm -hmm. haven't had any work, work sessions this year because just about every single one we've taken that tuesday to be a war tour so could, um, can march 5th be a flex meeting that it could turn into a regular meeting it's a work session now but that would give you your that week back that i mean it's just i think we're getting back to bouncing around I think, I mean, honestly, I think we're getting back to bouncing around. When people say one of the council meetings is Tuesday, it's, it's, the, it's the second or the fourth Tuesday night. And, I mean, without having to look at a calendar, so the, we can tell there's consistency there. As we prepare the budget. Um, yeah, we have extra money. Yeah, we, we, we probably need that March 5th. Yeah. And then probably can, as we get into the summer and fall, but we're probably going to need that meeting for... For budget preparations. Yeah. Okay. All right. So on the fifth, we're going to do think, a cold meeting. I think so. Okay. And also, if you have, if you have the planning commission sending actions that we need to act on as it relates to businesses waiting to open, you know, most of those businesses will probably be ready. Um, yes. And then I would also look at maybe the twelfth of November. I just again only having one formal session in November, and then you get to December and you have. 
Also, you have your, also you have your um, legislative right. send off that in November as well. So I would. So is, is, are we going to use the twelfth as a legislative? Okay. We send off day. Mark, what do we decide about the le what week? We're Thursday. We're going to do. We're it waiting to hear back. Hear back. So I think you're looking at 13, 14. We're waiting. I wait hear back from our speaker. So we would do that as another option. For the legislative, yes. Okay, that's fine. I, I still, I just, you know, again, planning, these folks wait for our And that's why a consistent rules. schedule, I mean, to me, that's why a consistent schedule is important. If you have a consistent schedule, you can tell people what the schedule is, and they can set their expectations accordingly. And, and I, I absolutely agree. I think the challenge is the consistent schedule gets thrown off because we have BML and National League of Cities and other things that we're all going to, but that doesn't, citizens don't realize Okay, well, if we're not going to have a meeting with National League of Cities, so if we're going to say it's going to be consistent. We have to be consistent, or we, you know, it's just that, it's that. I think we have to be flexible. I mean, I appreciate the, the discussion here. Right, and I think that also, um, and putting stuff on the calendar, that we have to consider going into the winter months, adding things to our, our calendar, while at the same time, we go to our Civic League um, meetings. Um, and... Um, along with the other city commitments in the evening, we have to consider that when we're looking at our schedule for the fall and winter months. As well, I mean, and even in the summer. Yeah. Because in the summertime, there's all kinds of things that are happening in the community yeah. that, you know, so we are, you know, required to go to as well. All right, so we're going to put, uh, we're going to have a, a um, business meeting on the 22nd of January. Okay. Uh, we're going to, the, the 5th of March would be a, a full business meeting. Um, I think we get all the way to November. So the retreat uh, to be determined. And frankly, the retreat was a, a placeholder as it, as it is for September. I'm sorry, for September. Um, am I hearing uh, the retreat is a Friday, half day Saturday? I don't know if we had consensus on that or not. I would I'll go to dinner with you on Friday. So for September, which one are we looking at for so September is the, I don't know that we have a recommendation for you. The, the, the request was to turn that 16-17, if you have a fall retreat, that it be a Friday, and I think it would have to be the, it, logically it's the, the probably that 20th, 21st. We'd be done by noon on the 21st. I'm going to commit to Friday. So you're saying Friday is a, uh, all day, and then Saturday half day. Yes, ma'am. That's what I'm hearing. And will we do that on the 13th or the 20th? Certainly not on Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good roll. That'll be the 20th. <laughs> all right. And then November, we're going to hold until we get our uh, keep what we have for November until we get our legislative speaker confirmed. Back to May, if I could, should we also add a formal on the 21st? Because okay. in May, we're only meeting one formal. I'm sorry, where, which month are you in? Uh, back to May. So we we the third Tuesday, they got same oh, no. So yeah. then should we make it the 28th? So what is this? That's the morning. Adding May. that is a traveling I'm not coming in May. Tuesday is a traveling day? No, Memorial Day. I mean, it's a traveling weekend. For that. I mean, we have school. Tuesday, the 29th. 28th, yeah. I think what she's saying is people travel on the back on the 27th 
or they or they're leaving on the on the twenty fourth. You got a skeleton crew on on Friday to be trying to work out a agenda. I mean, it's a, I mean, President's Day is one day. St. Paul's is another one, but I mean, whatever. I mean, I'll defer to the manager. Whatever y'all want. We just do it at the Fox TV Cancel the labor if it's not needed. Say, listen, you can always put it back on as we go through this. But is it easier to take it off than it is to add it? I mean, is it What's the notice requirement? 30 days? Okay, so we got to decide by April. Uh, no, no, you don't have a 30-day notice for setting a meeting? Well, yes, it's, it's only supposed to be done at any meeting. So we haven't set the exact times for the January uh, retreat yet. Uh, and so maybe we'll do that tonight or the 18th, but they're, they're, it just, it's just at any meeting. There's no 30-day requirement. Okay. Winter retreat. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Douglas. Get, right. work, get your work cut. I did not put Memorial Day back on unless somebody left something out. What's next? All right, so that is uh, Richard Broad is going to give you a, uh, an update on uh, recycling and the process that we've I've been through since we've gotten notification of the vendors desire to terminate our contract. Great. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Mayor and members of council, I promise this will be very short. Um, this evening, I would um, like to provide an update uh, on the current state of recycling, discuss changes to the agreement with TFC to collect and process the city's uh, recycling, and briefly discuss with you how staff is working to find a way forward. The world market for recyclable materials has collapsed. Um, as a result, the economic model for recycling in the U.S. has changed quite dramatically. Previously, the uh, sale of recyclables could cover most of the cost of sorting and shipping. When the market no longer covered cost, um, our recycling contractor um, opted to end its contract with the city per the terms of our agreement with them. This is a, um, a summary of the uh, recent events with respect to that contract we had just signed with TFC back in September of 2017. That was our second contract with them. Um, as soon as TFC notified the city that they planned to exercise their 90-day termination clause per their contract, city staff immediately started work to uh, put together and issue a new RFP. And the purchasing department was instrumental uh, in really rushing that through and getting the RFP on the street. Um, so we've since issued the RFP. We've got the bids in, and we're currently evaluating those. Um, and TFC graciously uh, extended us the offer to extend the old contract, the current contract, out till March 31st, 2019, which we're still operating under. So there's no interruption to resident service. So staff is currently um, assessing how to proceed in this challenging recycling market. We're considering several questions um, during this assessment. For example, is single stream curbside recycling still a viable model for the city of Norfolk? Will the U.S. Um, develop its own recycling processing industry? Because again, this is, a lot of this is caused by China tightening up on their contamination standards to, to which no single stream recycling model, which the U.S. is primarily following, can meet at this time. 
And what can we do to eliminate contamination uh, in the recycling collections? And what can we do to recycle to simplify recycling for our residents? So questions. That's it. <laughs> so, so this is a um, Andrea. I have a question. So I, yes. I want to understand. We've I've, I've heard talked about. Um, so recycling is the currently stands. The company picks it up. It's cleaned and it's sent um, to, to China because we live where we live in Norfolk. They get good rates for the port. Um, but the whole market for recycling has gone bonkers. They can still recycle. It's just a lot more expensive. The other option has been this. Is it wheel operator? This. What's it called? Waste to energy. Wheel operator runs the, the plant over about the ship. But my concern with that is, as we look at our climate change mitigation commission, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's really a good place to be going towards. So I, I mean, it creates a lot more uh, carbon emissions, and while it gets rid of the waste, it's still not particularly environmentally friendly as it relates to the other. So I hope we take that into account, and we yes. figure out that. I mean, I just don't know. Dollar amount, what we're talking about. It's part of the assessment. So, the last right. thing, and I kind of glossed over it, I'm going to come back in January and get way in the weeds. It'll be a deep dive into all the this stuff, and that will be considered. Okay. And I'll bring numbers in and put a bunch of options in front of you and get your input on that. I didn't want to get to that tonight because we're still in the RFP process, so I can't really start talking about cost without violating the rules of that. I, you, I, yeah, I just wanted, I mean, our. We're right in the middle of this climate change mitigation right. effort, so to the extent that it's not too costly, I mean, I recognize we have to weigh that, but I really hope that we maintain our recycling efforts. Right. So this, this is what's coming your way, though, is exactly this conversation. And candidly, you're going to have some choices, and those choices are going to have a cost. And remember that pyramid of sort of, if you go up that pyramid, you know, to essentially reuse, um, and things get candidly more and more expensive. And so waste energy, which SIPSA is using with wheel abrader with your regular waste, is, um, you know, it's not the bottom of the pyramid, but it's not the top of the pyramid either. And these are going to be, um, candidly, um, uh, hard choices. And, uh, and we want the community to be aware that we're going through that process, and you all, you all are going through that process. But I would tell you, to, to maintain what you had is going to be much more expensive than um, what you were paying. So we just want folks to understand right. that. I mean, I don't know, but much more expensive translate on a per household to right. What? We'll give you that, but we're we're at an the RFP was to ask that question. Okay. So we'll have those numbers for you that say, if you want this, it's going to cost each household X. If you want this, it'll cost them okay. X minus whatever. So, right. um, and we're we're involved in the uh, Norfolk Environmental Commission, correct? Yes. So they're they're in these conversations. So we'll give you some advice as well. But okay. I want to tee up for that. So that that's the. Um, uh, the informal document, we've got a couple items for first. Right. Mr. Muse. I move that members of council assemble informally in closed meeting on December 11, 2018 at 6.02 p.m. in the 10th floor conference room of City Hall building in the City of Norfolk for the purposes which are set out in Clause 3 of subsection A of section 2.3-3711 of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act as amended for discussion or consideration of the disposition of real property in Colonial Place. Ms. Doyle? Aye. Ms. Graves? Aye. Ms. Johnson? Aye. Ms. McClellan? Aye. Mr. Smeagle? Aye. Mr. Thomas? Aye. Mr. Alexander? Aye.